Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Rishi Sunak opened his wallet, possibly for the last time this week, as the Chancellor admitted the country is facing very tough choices ahead after coronavirus. Our health emergency is not yet over, and our economic emergency has only just begun. So our immediate priority is to protect people's lives and livelihoods. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, I'll be examining Mr Sunak's spending review, which saw the Chancellor pour more money into defence and supporting jobs, but slashed foreign aid and froze public sector pay. Unpicking the data and the strategy is our political editor, George Parker, and economics editor, Chris Giles. And later, we'll be looking at the new coronavirus restrictions, the introduction of the winter tiering system, the backlash from Conservative MPs, and whether a vaccine is going to come to the rescue in the spring. Health editor Sarah Neville and chief political correspondent Jim Picard will be explaining. Chris and George, welcome back. Morning. Nice to be here. So we had an interesting new appointment that's caught all of our eyes this week, that after all the harumphing in Downing Street with the departure of Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane, two of Boris Johnson's most senior aides, we have a new chief of staff, Dan Rosenfield, which many people don't know who he is, but thankfully you both do. George, who is this man and why should we care? Well, Dan Rosenfield, someone Chris and I remember from the dark days of the financial crisis. He was um, the private secretary to Alastair Darling. And then he became the private secretary to George Oswald. So someone who sinuously moved between one chancellor and the next. But basically, when he was working for Alistair Darling, his job was defusing the enormous amount of tension between Alistair Darling and Gordon Brown, the prime minister next door. He showed he could do that with aplomb. The other thing, by the way, was he was involved in setting the budget for the London Olympics, which obviously was one of Boris Johnson's greatest triumphs while London mayor. And I'm told he was recommended for the job by Paul Dayton, who was the guy who ran the London Olympics, who now happens to be Dan's boss, at Hacklet, the security consultancy. So there you are. Well, Chris, you couldn't think of a more different figure when you read his bio, working for a security consultancy, worked in the Treasury. It's not exactly this sort of vote leave anti-establishment group of people who Mr. Johnson had around him until just a few weeks ago. No, not at all. I mean, my memory of him when we sort of met on the international circuit, particularly in the financial crisis, was that he was very establishment, big figure, the sort of person that often did have a drink with Alistair Darling late at night, just as the world felt it was falling off a cliff. And the phrase I remember him using most often, which again is particularly establishment, he wanted to give ministers a Rolls Royce service. He kept on saying that to ensure that they could make decisions in difficult times. Well, I think given what Downing Street and the government has been through, they might do with a Ford Cortina, but maybe the Rolls Royce service will eventually come. Let's move on to the main topic of the week. A spending review is usually the crowning moment of a new government, where it can set out its priorities and who is going to get the cash. 
but coronavirus and the catastrophic economic impact have sunk most of Rishi Sunak's plans to boost public services. The Treasury's billions are being used instead to prop up jobs and stave off mass unemployment. But it's still going to be tough for many parts of the economy, including millions of public sector workers who will not receive a pay rise despite being at the forefront of the coronavirus response. This is what Mr Sunak told MPs. I cannot justify a significant across-the-board pay increase for all public sector workers. Instead, we are targeting our resources at those who need it most. To protect public sector jobs at this time of crisis and ensure fairness between the public and private sectors. Well, Chris, give us an overview of what Mr Sunak announced in his statement and particularly just how bad are the UK's public finances? Well, they're pretty bad, I think, on any basis. I'll just go through the pretty awful figures from the Office for Budget Responsibility, the independent watchdog who produces the forecasts for the government. They weren't massively surprising, but they are pretty awful, however you look at them. Growth is going to be minus 11.3% this year. The overall size of the economy is going to decline by 11.3%. That's the worst performance in over 300 years. What's interesting and what it does to the public finances, when you have a big contraction, clearly tax revenues always go down. But in this crisis, what's different is that actually the biggest effect on the public finances has been all the amount of money that Britain has had to spend to protect companies, households and jobs from COVID and the health service. So there's been £280 billion spent by the government in the crisis. And that's going to push the deficit this year. So the government's going to spend £394 billion more than it raises in taxes. That's 19% of the whole size of the economy. That's not a figure we've seen at any time since the Second World War, when it was about 24%. So we are getting into sort of World War territory of borrowing this year. And then when you look forward, next year is going to be a very large amount of borrowing, about 160 or so billion. And then even five years ahead, in the middle of the decade, the OBR reckons most likely we're still going to be borrowing about 100 billion pounds a year. That's about 4% of national income. On traditional measures, that would be seen as an unsustainable amount of money. One of the interesting things about this spending review, it would have been higher than that. It would have been about 115 or so billion Rishi Sunak stealthily cut spending already, even though there's this talk of no austerity. Actually, there was quite a bit of austerity. He cut the spending plans compared with where they were in March. So they're already lower later on in the parliament than they were back in March. And George, what did you make of the tone of this statement? Because up until now, Rishi Sunak's time as Chancellor has been about the guy who's spending lots of money through the furlough scheme, the bounce back loans, all these things to keep the British economy going throughout this year's coronavirus travails. But as Chris said, that's obviously created this huge problem in terms of the UK debt and deficit pile. I think his tone was a bit more disjointed this time because he was trying to still sound like that good time spending chancellor while also acknowledging the perilous state of finances and the fact that there are going to be really tough choices ahead next year. Yeah, it was a difficult story to report in the sense that the speech was a speech of two halves, wasn't it? It started off with the chancellor stating boldly that the economic emergency is just beginning. And then the second half of the speech was a list of all the money he was intending to disperse to honour Conservative Party manifesto commitments. And I think Chris put it very well last week in saying it was almost the last hurrah of the Rishi Sunak we've come to know in his first 
year as chancellor, the chancellor handing out money hand over fist, really. And just those sort of glimpses in this speech of the very hard decisions that he's going to have to make. And already you start to see some of the shine coming off Rishi Sunak. Look at his opinion poll ratings. They've come down from stratospheric levels to more mortal levels, I think it's fair to say, over the autumn as he's had to keep reviewing his winter economic plan. And I thought listening to him the day after the statement, being interviewed about some of the priorities that he'd set out there in that statement, he started to sound a bit defensive. You know, why was he freezing the pay, for example, of a teaching assistant while he found money for extra defence equipment and also trying to defend the very controversial decision to cut £4 billion from our overseas aid budget. So times are going to get a lot tougher for Rishi Sunak. And it was, I felt, very much a sort of pivotal moment in his chancellorship where the money was found to honour those commitments made in the Tory manifesto, particularly to the left-behind regions. But as Chris was saying there at the start, it's a sort of ominous view that things are about to get a lot tougher in the coming year. Well, it does feel that this has given an opening for the Labour Party because until now, they've really struggled to outflank Mr Sunak because he's spending so much money. But that decision not to raise public sector pay was criticised by Annalise Dodds, the shadow chancellor. Earlier this year, the chancellor stood on his doorstep and clapped for key workers. Today, his government institutes a pay freeze for many of them. This takes a sledgehammer to consumer confidence. Many key workers who willingly took on so much responsibility during this crisis are now being forced to tighten their belts. In contrast, there's been a bonanza for those who have won contracts from this government. The Chancellor said at the beginning of his speech that our economic emergency has only just begun. Try telling that to people who've been out of work since March. Chris, do you think that's a fair accusation? Because obviously Mr Sunak was saying the private sector has and is going to take a hammering. Lots of NHS workers are getting a pay rise, but it does see that in some ways this is returning to the normal economic debate you would get in the UK. It is, and it's one of those things where there's a sort of different way you will think about it depending on how you come at the problem. If you come at it from an ethical point of view, which I think Annalise was just there, you would say that frontline public sector workers have been really put at mortal risk through the crisis. And therefore, not just in the health service, it feels really quite odd that they're not being given a pay rise. On an economic front, it's true to say that private sector workers are seeing rather low pay increases this year, or even pay cuts. Unemployment has been rising. And so you wouldn't necessarily want public sector pay to be running far ahead of private sector pay during the crisis. And so it's justifiable to cut it. But that really creates a tension there, which I think we heard when we heard what Rishi had to say and what Annalise had to say. And that's not going to go away at any time soon. Again, it's one of those things that's going to make it harder Rishi Sunak in the years to come. Well, on that ethical point, George, probably the most striking thing that's caused a lot of consternation amongst Conservative MPs is this cut to the UK's foreign aid budget, which is going from 0.7% of GDP to 0.5%, which will save the government about £4 billion, which has gone directly into more defence spending. But this target has become something of a kind of standard bearer policy for David Cameron and centrist Tories. That foreign aid budget has been under pressure for such a long time. People are always saying cut it. Why did the government decide to do it now? And what sort of image does it send out about global Britain? 
the easiest way to explain that is to say it's popular, popular with the public at least, not so popular in the developing world, of course. And the polling immediately after the statement showed that it was widely supported by the public. You know, Rishi Sunak referred to the fact that this spending review set out the government's priorities and the money was being found for the government's priorities, particularly the levelling up agenda. There was a £4 billion fund set up for northern towns and so on. You didn't have to be a genius to see where that money was coming from. Also, as you say, to help pay for some of the defence spending. So it does send out a signal, I think a damaging signal, because the UK assumes the leadership of the G7 next year and also the UN COP26 conference. It doesn't present a particularly pretty picture to the rest of the world. Yes, I just think it sends a picture of what's exactly going on in the foreign office and development office at the moment, because you would have thought that a very strong foreign secretary would be able to defend aid spending now it's in that department. And it does say something quite significant, I think, about Dominic Raab in that he just completely failed to support the one very large part of his department when I think as George and you wrote this week, that was one of the commitments he made and said it is in law when the two departments were merged back in the summer. Now, Chris, if we can just go back to this debt power. So according to our reporting this week, borrowing is going to hit £394 billion. Now, some of that can obviously be pushed into the long term, just for sort of a basic explanation. What's going to happen to that debt pile? And what about this £27 billion black hole people have been talking about? Okay, well, I'm going to have to sort of slightly correct you here, Seb. I'm sorry about this. Please do. We have to get our terminology right, otherwise I'll get murdered by people about the difference between deficits and debt. And you, along with the vast majority of the British public, find these things a little bit difficult. So the deficit is the ongoing difference between taxes and public spending. And so this year, tax revenue is going to fall £394 billion short of public spending. And that will therefore increase the level of debt that the UK government owes to creditors which is never going to pay back. So we should never talk about the phrase paying back debt because we simply aren't going to do that. We're going to service this debt. Actually, with interest rates extremely low, the servicing cost on the debt is going down by about £20 billion a year at the moment. So the servicing element has got cheaper. The £27 billion number is the difference between day-to-day public spending at the end of the parliament, 2025-26, and expected tax revenues at that time. And it is one of the Tory party's manifesto commitments that they would balance that part of the budget, which would generally mean you'd have to raise about £40 to be sure you were going to hit it. Now, these are all terribly uncertain. It's not a surprise at all that Rishi Sunak has not decided to go ahead and try and close the gap for the end of the parliament yet, because these numbers can bounce around and are very sensitive to quite small changes in the outlook for the economy. I also think it is possible that they might ditch some of these fiscal rules and just decide to borrow more money, because that is the way that the international thinking is going. If you look at what's going on in the US, for example, there is no way that the Joe Biden administration is going to be fiscally hawkish. Now, the Republicans might learn to re-love fiscal hawkishness to try and thwart his ambitions. But there's no way the Democrats are going to do what failed for Barack Obama by being fiscally prudent only to watch a future Republican administration go and splurge the money. I wouldn't be 100% surprised if the Tory administration here under Boris Johnson didn't take a similar attitude. 
Well, finally, George, I think the question is, what do those Tories who care about fiscal constraint think about all this? Because, of course, we went through the austerity years under David Cameron and George Osborne of we're all in this together. We have to get the public finances under control. And it feels like that is totally gone now. Yeah, I mean, I was doing a a round around Portcullis House at Westminster, trying to find Tory MPs who were alarmed by the amount of borrowing that was being run up by the government. And you'd be surprised. I, I even got to John Redwood. I thought, well, at least John Redwood's going to be critical. He was saying, no, as Chris was just saying, you know, interest rates are going to be low for a long time. This is exactly the right thing to be doing at the moment. And so I think what we'll see next year, and Chris alluded to this, is some really difficult decision. I'm sure we'll see some more stealthy austerity of the kind we saw this week in the spending review, sort of shaving money off spending totals. There will be tax rises for sure. But I think in the end, given the fact that the Chancellor's been forced to wait to start this fiscal consolidation by the COVID outbreak, you know, we're starting to get into the sort of mid-term of the Parliament, which is not a comfortable time for any party to start raising taxes. So my guess is that borrowing will continue to take most of the strain for the rest of this Parliament. Chris and George, thank you very much. The England-wide national lockdown will end next week, but it won't feel like that for millions of people. Boris Johnson announced the new tiering system that would replace the previous measures, with shops and gyms reopening for everyone. But the new tier levels will be significantly beefed up for 34 million people, meaning no indoor socialising for the majority of England well into the spring. And it's made Conservative MPs particularly unhappy too, with the threat of rebellion growing. But the government's scientific and health advisers concluded the old system wasn't cutting it and tougher measures were necessary to avoid a third lockdown. Epidemiologist Professor John Edmonds told the BBC. Well, certainly the tier one and tier two really weren't slowing the epidemic very much at all. And so uh, we would have just seen those places just uh, pick up again quite rapidly. I think it is important that we continue to bring the epidemic down or at least slow it right down in those low incidence areas as well. Because, you know, uh, if we don't, then the low incidence areas will rapidly become high incidence areas. The first thing that gets affected is the health service that's already under pressure in many parts of the country. Well, Jim Picard, welcome back to the podcast. Can you begin by setting us out what's in the new tiering system and what the differences are between the three levels? Okay, so let's start with tier one, which only applies to about 700,000 people. So we can rattle through this one quite quickly. That one, people can meet outdoors, indoors. It's all fairly light regime. Tier two, however, which applies to 32 million people, means that you have no household mixing indoors other than support bubbles. Um, Up to six people can meet, but only outdoors. And pubs and bars uh, are open, but only if they're serving meals and they must have last orders at 10 p.m. And to be indoors in a, a pub or a bar, you need to be with your family. You can only meet friends at a pub or a bar outside. Um, In tier two, some spectator sports can operate also in tier one. And then tier three, which is the toughest one, which applies to 23 million people, including Greater Manchester and Birmingham, is pretty severe. There's basically no household mixing. There's hospitality outlets are closed unless they're doing takeaway services. And people are advised not to travel outside the area at all if they can help it. And hotels and other accommodation and all entertainment facilities pretty much are closed. 
So Sarah Neville, that is the new tiering system that was set out. And it's quite a lot tougher than the old one we had before the November lockdown. What has changed and why? So I think the main thing to note is that the vast majority of people in England are in the top two tiers. So this is for most of those areas, significantly tougher in terms of their ability to mingle and meet with friends and family indoors than what they were enduring before. And it's thrown up some slightly strange and politically contentious developments, such as in Kent, which was in tier one with relatively mild restrictions at the point that England went into the lockdown that comes to an end on December the 2nd. But when we come out of lockdown, it's going to be in tier three. So that's obviously uh, raising considerable questions, particularly in the minds of the MPs in that area, about what exactly the last three weeks of lockdown have achieved. What exactly do you think is going on there? Is this a discrepancy in how the system is being done? Or is there something that new we're learning about how coronavirus is spreading? Well, it's important to note that some of the tier three areas have seen very significant reductions in their level of infection. So I don't think one should sort of run away with the idea that the scientists were wrong about the way the infection has been spreading. But I think perhaps one of the weapons that's emerging as really important in the armory is these so-called lateral flow tests, these very rapid tests that have been made widely available in Liverpool, and certainly in that city, they're being very much credited with the reduction in the infection rate there. Now, Jim, of course, the question that's raised among lots of local leaders and MPs is how decisions were made. And obviously, there's a number of factors the government's have been looking at, which is the number of people in hospital for COVID, the positive tests for coronavirus, and particularly the rate on over 60s. And we've seen quite a difference between different areas. So one interesting one is Liverpool versus Manchester, because they were both in the strictest tier under the old system. Whereas now you've got Liverpool has gone back to tier two, but Manchester is still in tier three. And we've heard from Andy Burnham, the mayor of Manchester, saying that he really hopes it can move down a tier before Christmas. Yeah. And I think to be fair to the government on this point, Manchester is still way, way higher than Liverpool. I think what's quite interesting is that our stats guru, John Byrne Murdoch, created a wonderful table yesterday comparing who's in tier two and who's in tier three. And when you look at it on the surface, there are some areas which have been put into tier two, such as Havering, Scarborough, Redbridge, Bexley, which have definitely much higher infection rates than some of the ones in tier three, such as Ashford, Stratford, on Avon and Coventry. I think the point here is it just illustrates the fact that it isn't just the factor of how high the infection rate is. It's also the trend. Is it going up? Is it going down? And also particular things like the instance among the over 60s. Now, of course, this has led to a rebellion from Conservative MPs because we know they're particularly unhappy about the restrictions continuing and they feel it's unfair. Graham Brady, who's chair of the 1922 Committee of Backbench MPs, told the BBC that he, for one, will be voting against the measures. 
I will vote against it. I, I uh, have severe reservations on so many different uh, levels. I do think that the policies have been uh, far too authoritarian. I think they've interfered in people's private and personal lives in a way which is unacceptable. Uh, and you know, I think when we look at the experience in particular of places like Greater Manchester, which actually have barely been out of restrictions for the last eight months, I think there is a, a limit to what it's reasonable uh, to expect communities to absorb. Well, Sarah, this rebellion seems to be coming from two different areas. You've got the libertarian Tory wing um, espoused by Sir Graham there saying that these measures are too draconian, have been going on too long. Then you've also got this unfairness thing. And we saw seven of Kent's Conservative MPs saying they are deeply unhappy because you've got this big discrepancy between areas within Kent. Yes, the political sensitivities around this are only going to get worse. Everything the government is doing at the moment is dedicated to ensuring that people can have Christmas. I think, you know, Boris Johnson is very well aware that if he's the prime minister who kills Christmas, that really is going to cut through, as they say. That is something that people will remember. But the problem is the lack of unanimity about the measures that are needed in Downing Street's mind to guarantee that those five days of leeway can happen. And of course, the situation is likely to get even worse after Christmas, when we're clearly going to be paying a considerable price for the relaxation on household mixing over that period. And it's going to come at the very moment when the NHS every single year is under its maximum pressure. And Jim, how serious is this rebellion? Is it going to erode Mr Johnson's majority? And is he going to have to rely on Labour votes to get this thing through next week? Because if he did, that would be quite an indictment of his government just one year in having to get its main business through with opposition votes. Yeah, I think actually they will probably be fairly relaxed in number 10 about the likelihood of this going through because you know, once again, we have to remember majority of 80 gives you an awful lot of flexibility. You can have a huge rebellion of libertarian right-wing Tories on an issue like this. And yet, do we really think Keir Starmer is going to vote against these new measures when he's made a whole point of accepting the general thrust of the government's approach to COVID and lockdowns? But, you know, it's always a headache when you have a rebellion, especially when it's coming from not just one wing of the party. I mean, to be fair here, some of the rebels like Damien Green is very much not in the same sort of philosophical ranks as Steve Baker, who is quite a hard-headed libertarian. I think Tory MPs are genuinely shocked that the number of people living under tier one has instantly gone from 23 million people back in October to literally only 1 million. And now, as we said earlier, 99% of people in the tougher tier two and tier three restrictions. But I think this idea that you could have a kind of town by town or village by village set of tiers where one mile away, you can take your friends to the pub and a mile in the other direction no one can go to the pub even outdoors. I mean, it would be ludicrously difficult to police. There would, I think, just be chaos. That certainly would be what the government would say while defending this. And it seems to me that what this is presenting the government with is a really massive communication challenge, which thus far they don't really seem to be meeting. We think back to the early days where the message was so clear about staying at home But the rapid changes of policy, changes of tack, as Jim says, you know, it seems to me the public really isn't getting the explanations that it needs if it is actually to honour these changes. 
I was struck looking at the footage of Canterbury, the best known town in Kent. And the high street there was absolutely thronged with people. I really got a sense looking at that, that people aren't understanding at all what they're required to do. And if you want the biggest mixed message of all, it's that ministers, including the prime minister, are saying you can have Christmas with two other distant elements of your family and you can hang out with them over five days. And Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, was asked at the press conference number 10, what did he think about the idea of hugging and kissing those relatives over Christmas? And he offered the very grim message that if you were to do so, then you may not get to hug them in the future. So, I mean, you don't get more mixed messaging than that, I'm afraid. And Sarah, I just wanted an overview of where we're at with the vaccine as well, because this is a big part of the government strategy. You have these tiers, you hope people are going to stick to them and it will keep the virus down. That's the intention between now and the vaccination process beginning. There's been a bit of disruption to the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine this week, which is really being held out as the government's main hope for getting us out of this because it's cheap and easily available. They've had a bit of data confusion. How is that going to affect the government's process? programme for rolling it out? Well, I think it's been extremely unfortunate, but I don't think in the great scheme of things that it actually is going to delay the rollout. What happened was when Oxford University and AstraZeneca put out a press release on their results, they chose to headline it with a figure of 90% efficacy. They explained in the press release that this was the result of a particular dosing regimen. Well, it later turned out that that regimen had been discovered entirely by mistake, which I don't think perhaps particularly took the sheen off it. But the problem is that it then emerged that this 90% efficacy had only been demonstrated in people up to the age of 55. And the company itself didn't disclose that. It was instead disclosed by the vaccine czar in the United States. So it's all raised huge questions around data transparency. It's really underlined, I think, just how rapidly these vaccines are being brought to market, that these sort of snafus will, and and in this case, have happened. But I don't think ultimately it will slow down the process of the vaccine getting regulatory approval. The vaccine is cheap. By any normal standards, it's effective. It's about the same level as the annual flu injection provides. And finally, last quick question to you, Jim. How much breaking of the rules do you think there's going to be with these new tier systems? Because we've obviously got that Christmas Freedom Week. But beyond that, do you think that many people will stick to these new tier systems, given the fact it's very hard to socialise outside, it's cold and people are just a bit fed up? Well, I think public patience is becoming more weary. I think definitely in the first lockdown, there was an incredibly high level of adherence to the rules. I think that is starting to stretch I mean, the question really is how people break the rules. I mean, if more than two people were to meet outdoors in the fresh air at a distance, then that isn't going to be a huge viral risk, I would argue. Whereas if you've got families gathering with other families indoors, then that's a whole different level of danger. I suspect as well, the scientists in Downing Street, they seem to be more worried about this five-day relaxation over the Christmas period where the government has given carte blanche to people to hang out pretty much as much as they like with distant relatives that seems to be more of a moment of danger than the sort of general adherence to the rules. I mean, it's very hard to say, isn't it? You see people over social media saying that they're going to resist the rules and enough is enough and all the rest of it. I think the fact that the vaccines are obviously around the corner in a few months does give people enough hope 
to get through this. I think the fact that there are massive fines for breaching the rules is obviously the stick alongside the vaccine carrot. So fingers crossed, people will broadly adhere to the rules. And I think generally they will. And finally, Sarah, do you think there's cause to be hopeful here with these new tiers and with the vaccine getting this relaxed as we get into the new year? Yes, I think a combination of mass testing and the vaccines and hopefully, you know, a considerable depressant effect on infection rates from the tiers are starting to make things look considerably brighter. I think it was John Bell, the government's life sciences leader, who stuck his neck out on the day we got the results from the Pfizer vaccine and said, by April, we will be approaching getting back to normal life. And I think that's one thing we can all cling on to as we head into this long, dark winter. Absolutely. Sarah and Jim, thank you for joining. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. Please also do rate and review us if you've enjoyed the episode. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Delamere. The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.